It's here. Aw, oh, shit. Spontanea Nation, Paul F. Tompkins' brand new magical, mysterious, and musical show. It's now on Earwolf. Paul F. Tompkins is one of the great comedic voices in America today. He is spectacular at everything he does, and his new podcast is going to be a fucking hurricane. I guarantee it. It's completely improvised. From monologue to interview to long-form sketch music, it's all improvised. Paul F. Tompkins is worth your time. Mondays on Earwolf. Tune in or be a real dickhead. My name is Nate Cordry. I host the podcast. The podcast is called Reading Aloud. I'm Nate Cordry. Thanks for listening. We have a brand new show with all kinds of new fun stuff. We had an amazing book club last week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading the book. And get the new book. The new book is a classic. F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night about wealthy American socialite artists in the French Riviera in the 20s and the lost generation and the partying and the love and the mistakes. It's really rich stuff. So pick that up. This is the first classic that we've read too. So this is a dawn of a, of a, of a change perhaps in the book club section of Reading Aloud. There's also going to be a live uh, book club this summer, which I've just figured out. Uh, which is going to be really fun. We'll announce that as we get closer to the date. Uh, but go in the meantime, go pick up Tenders the Night. You can get that book anywhere in your local bookstore and read it and be a part of the book club. Reading Aloud Podcast at gmail.com is the email to send in your thoughts. Also, I'm totally open to book club suggestions. So if you have a book that you love or a book that you'd love to read that you think would attract a wide variety of readers, uh, send me the idea so we can talk about it. Again, readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for sharing your points of view on the books as well. We had a lot of great emails about the whites, which we did last week with Nelson Franklin and John Forrest. If you haven't li listened to that episode, it's great fun because those two guys are really great friends of mine. And, and the book was great. So we had a lot of fun stuff to talk about. So download that episode. It's previous to this episode. But let's talk about this episode, shall we? We start off with some comedy, as we usually do. The delightful Anna Faris, who's a pal, came down to the UCB and read this really hilarious McSweeney's piece by Juliana Gray. She also had another piece on last year called Philip Marlowe Attends a Court-Mandated Women's Studies Workshop, which is really funny. Um, and this piece, I won't give away the title. I'll let Anna give you the title. But she just killed. A, a lot of people read really well at these live shows, and the audience love, lo loves them. But Anna played a character, which is unique. And she was so good. She had such a great take and such a good perspective on this character. You'll hear, you, you can hear the audience just like they're in the palm of her hand. So this is from a few weeks ago at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Uh, and this is Anna Faris reading a piece written by Juliana Gray. Here's Anna. Ladies and gentlemen, Anna Faris! <laughs> This piece is called As the token female member of this action adventure team My job is to kick By Juliana Gray I wear black leather pants I wear spike-heeled boots. When I kick, I pivot like a goth ballerina and drive a heel into a villain's face. But I'm also smart. Probably some kind of scientist. 
psychology, <laughs> genetics. My lab coat sweeps like a silk chemise across my thighs. Mostly I kick. I can throw a knife with pinpoint accuracy. I am a wizard at zip lines. I probably know how to drive a car, but my male team members always take the wheel while I follow on a motorcycle. Leaning low over the bars, my eyes focused, my ass taut, and hovering just above the seat. I do not wear a helmet, and my hair streams behind me. I can pound shots of whiskey, like a stevedore. I do not eat. Really, my hair is impractically long for all of my action work, but somehow it never blows in my face. Strands of it never get stuck in my mouth. I'm just not an awkward, messy-haired, wobbly in knees, I'd rather put on my yoga pants and watch Netflix kind of woman. I do not have a sense of humor, except for an extensive repertoire of one-liners about penis size. My male team members may have been skeptical of me at first, but I've earned their respect. I've achieved this by fighting one of them. This fight ended with me pinning the man to the floor, straddling him, panting through my half-parted lips. And now, total respect. Scissor kick. Scorpion kick, whip kick, butterfly twist kick, spinning hook kick, crescent kick. My axe kick is like a beheading sword. My tornado kick is the wrath of an angry god. There is some sexual tension between me and the handsome team leader. But we both know better than to cross that line. It would never work out between us. He's too driven and haunted by ghosts of the past. I'm an orphan who had to get tough fast to make my way in the world. Sometimes I catch him admiring the way my leather pants and top. Is that a jacket? A bustier? Hug my curves. But we keep it professional. Maybe I'm a physicist. That would make sense because my roundhouse kicks can only be the result of intensive government-funded study. Seriously. I'm like a goddamn human gyroscope. <laughs> a gyroscope that kicks you in the face. I can hotwire a car. I'm a hacker. I can take a punch. When a trickle of blood runs fetchingly from the corner of my mouth, it matches my lipstick. There may come a time in our mission when I'm required to go undercover, infiltrate a formal charity ball or an evening at the opera. I will don a strapless taffeta gown, deep scarlet, encrusted with sparkling beads. My diamond and emerald pendant will drip into my cleavage. My team members will be stunned by my transformation. They've developed such a deep professional respect for me that they sometimes forget I am also a woman. <laughs> Our team leader's mouth will drop ever so slightly as I descend a staircase. He will recover his composure with a compliment or a joke and we will be professionals again. <laughs> when the time comes for me to kick, I will tear a slit in my form-fitted gown 
and let fly the designer heels. I almost never cry, but when I do, when I witness an act of cruelty towards a child, and my icy veneer briefly cracks, I weep only a single tear. I angrily dash it away, hoping my teammates haven't noticed. But mostly I kick. Anna Faris reading Juliana Gray's As the token female member of this action-adventure team, my job is to kick. That was published in March on the uh, Timothy McSweeney's Internet Tendency website. Thank you, Juliana, for allowing us to read the piece and have it be part of the podcast. Isn't Anna just great? Isn't she so good in that reading? Thank you, Anna, for coming down uh, and being a part of the UCB show. Uh, we have another show live show coming up very soon, Sunday, August 12th at the UCB Theater on Franklin, five bucks. It's at 7.30. We have another set of amazing readers, a lot of new readers, James Urbaniak, Mary Grill, Molly Ephraim, Allison Becker, a lot of people who haven't been part of the show before. So lots of new talent coming down to the UCB. So uh, show up April 12th. We're going to take a really quick break and then come back with more reading aloud. This episode of Reading Aloud is brought to you by DraftKings. This is a website that I've used. I've blown some money on this website. Uh, I've used it for football, but spring training is underway, and that can only mean one thing. Baseball season is almost here. Yes. And there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com. It's America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site where you can win huge cash prizes every day. I won $125 once uh, because DeMarco Murray had a really good running game that Sunday. Uh, Anyway, there's instant cash, instant gratification. It's like a new season every time you play. You You can change your players every day, which is awesome. You pick two pitchers and eight position players and you got to stay under the salary cap that they give you um, and you can be on your way to a massive payday so hurry to draftkings.com now and use promo code read to play for free in the hundred thousand dollar fantasy baseball contest on opening day first place takes home ten thousand dollars so use promo code read Free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Well, listeners, this is a real joy because my mother's first interview is happening right now. Hi, Mom. Hi, Nate. Uh, Mom is here in California. She and her wife sold their house in Massachusetts two years ago? Three. Three? Has it been three years? Almost three. Three this fall. Wow. So they sold their house three years ago, and then what happened? I bought a travel trailer, and we took off. And what was your first destination? (sighs) Virginia, North Carolina, then Florida for the winter. Had you been to those places before? Virginia, yes. North Carolina, no. Yeah. And it's been three years. Yeah, it will be three years in a couple of months. Yeah. And you've just about, besides maybe the far, the Dakotas, and maybe Wyoming or something, have you been up there? No. Okay, so you haven't done that northern pass. We're hoping this summer we'll be able to do it. Yeah, because you have to go from Seattle to Massachusetts. Yes. And that's, yeah, hit those Montana and the Dakotas and see all that fun stuff up there. Yeah. Uh, Mom is here because she was the first reader that I ever um, encountered, basically. I don't remember a moment that my mother didn't have a book in her hand. We would go to the Tufts Library in Weymouth, Massachusetts, almost, when I was a kid, almost every day, or every other day. Yeah, a couple of times a week. At least a couple of times a week. true. So you went there taking out books. You were constantly taking out books. Yes, huge armloads. So what, how how did you start as a 
as a reader, how did you, were you reading as a kid? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my mother and I used to walk to the library, which is a rather, was a rather long walk in Portland. Portland, Maine. In Portland, Maine. And she would, you guys would walk together. Yeah. So it was handed down to you from your mother. Yes, and my dad. They were both readers. Both voracious readers. So they always had a book in their hand. Pretty much. Wow. Okay. Now, yeah. Don, this is making sense. <laughs> so did you read a lot when you were like in high school and, and junior high? All the time. And what did you read? Do you mysteries. Remember? Yeah. A lot of mysteries. I still read a lot of mysteries. Yeah. And biographies, historical fiction. Yeah. I want to get into, you have this genre of books that you love. True. You like mysteries, but not just mysteries. You like there to be priests or nuns involved. <laughs> I, I do like that. You, that's your favorite <laughs> genre. The, you, I think maybe the greatest show in your entire life was the Father Dowling Mysteries. Do you remember that show? Oh, absolutely. You loved that show. I did love that show. Because it was a priest solving crimes. Yep. <laughs> what is a, what is it about people of the of the of the clergy solving mysteries? I don't know. Cuz you're interested in both of those things, yes, I guess. Yes. I was always fascinated by nuns. How come? Still fascinated. I thought I wanted to be one long 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 ago. Right. And then I thought that won't work. How old were you when you when you thought that? Oh, junior high, high school? Oh, wow. Yeah. Where did that where did that come from? I have no idea. But you wasn't Catholic, so you you going to church every week, though. Usually, yes. And something about the nuns just sort of piqued your interest. Like yeah. what is Well, it's they, an interesting life. The nuns actually we didn't have nuns where I went to to church. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, have you read the Bible? Oh, golly, yes. From start to finish? A couple of times. Really? Yeah. How often do you read past, because I've never read anything from the Bible because I'm not, um, I guess I'm not a Christian, I guess. I guess I kind of am, but not really. <laughs> and I don't, I've never read long passages. Do you read it for fun, for the stories, or do you read it for inspiration? I don't read it as much now. Yeah. Especially not traveling. The Bibles are all in storage. Right. But... I would read it for inspiration and to learn. Yeah. There's an awful lot to learn just about the Jewish history and the whole the whole historical part of it. Yeah. Did you do you have certain like books or passages from the Bible that you that are favorites or you, you just sort of no. jump around and read it all? I mostly mostly the New Testament. Okay. The Old Testament's kind of heavy. That's the fire and brimstone stuff, yes. right? Yes, it is. The New, the New Testament is a lot of fun, um, like stories, yes. basically. Lots of parables. Yeah, parables. Yeah. Maybe for one of these book clubs, maybe we should read the Bible. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> do you think? I don't know. There's not a lot of pictures. Okay. Sam will be, it's just you and I, Sam, we're going to read the Bible from cover to cover and talk about it one afternoon. Um, uh, we have this uh, book club as part of the show where we read a book every month and then I have people come in and talk about it. And you are another inspiration for that because I remember you having book clubs in the house growing up. Yes. You had, yes. How, did, how did that, how did you find those people and like how did that come about? Uh, our next door neighbor, Hope, was part of the book club. Oh. So she invited me to come because she knew I read a lot. And and it was mostly people when I was 45 in their 60s. Oh, or okay. Maybe I was even younger, but I loved it. How and often did you meet? Once a month. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they um, moved from house to house. Right. That's right. Every yes. month it would be someone else's house. Yes. And so once a year you would host this book club. Yep. Yeah, you know, I I remember you <laughs> cleaning the house. Oh lord, yes. You being like uh, all of these women are coming over here <laughs> and I and I'm sure every one of those women had the same Was it only women? Yep. Okay. Uh it was. Everyone, you know, you're inviting all these people into your house and so you have to I remember you panicking. 
like cleaning that house from top to bottom and get the dog out here, move your books over, clean your room. Not that anyone would go into my room. Yeah. But I remember like that was a very, because yes. it was rare that we had uh, parties or like had. Big parties. Yeah, like no. a bunch of people over to the house. Sure. Every so often we'd have a, a barbecue. Yeah. We had our group that dad and I yeah. hung out with. Like your friend, your friend circle. Right. But that book club was, I remember just hearing tons of laughter coming from the family room or <laughs> yes. the living room, wherever that was, the living family room. room. Yeah. Definitely the living room. Yeah, the living room. Yeah. It's all formal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sit in those arched chairs. Yeah. Do you remember what, you, this, this is going way back, but do you remember any of the books that you, was there a theme to the book club? Or uh, you, whoever was hosting yeah. got to choose what they would review. Okay. And, and sometimes people would review other books during that meeting. Hope always did historical ones, generally on the Adams family. Oh God. The, you know, you know <laughs> Good Lord. Not every time a different book about <laughs> Abigail Adams? Yep. Oh boy. There's a lot of books about I'm Adams. Sure. <laughs> and I bet a third of them were really boring. I'm generalizing. Yeah, yeah um, some of them were. How many books did you have to read on Abigail Adams? Oh, I, I didn't have to read them. See, we didn't all read the same book. Oh. You would, you would review the books that you had read that month if you were the hostess. Oh, that's different. Oh, okay. Yes. I didn't know that. Totally different. So how did you prepare? Did you have to read more than one book? I usually did. So what? So they'd come to your house... Yeah. And no one's prepared anything. No. Or read any sort of book. Well, everybody's read books. They, but you haven't read the same one together. Right. No. no. So you as the host, would, re, would would they know before they came what books you were going to talk about? Not necessarily. So this is more of a book club just to talk about different books. Yes. As yes. opposed to reading one book and just spending yes. an evening drinking wine and talking about one book. Yes. Wow, I, I didn't know that that was a thing. Oh yeah, that. Well, I don't know as it is now. Everyone I talk yeah. to that's in book clubs, they all read the same book. That seems really. I, I feel like that's. It'd be more fun to have a bunch of people reading the same book and get and to have overlapping conversations about what you liked about the book and what you know turned you off about the book. But there's really something great about the one that you had because every because you had there's so much m more. You're talking about so many more books than yes. you usually would. And so many different genres. Right. I mean, we, we did a lot of the more historical biographies, mm. more, I won't say heavy, but yeah, some it, of more it heavy. It sounds academic. And, <laughs> and, and then one month I decided I was doing Stephen King. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's written down here on my list of questions. <laughs> Do you remember, what you, did you say like one, was it like The Shining or did you just talk about all of his books? I don't remember which ones. Yeah. But I did more than one. Yeah. And <laughs> we had a library um in our upstairs sort of television room. Yeah, study. Um, study, yeah. Where there's a TV and your sewing machine and a couch. Um and we had this little sort of library in the side of that room, five, four or five shelves of books, and there was always packed yes. with your books that you've collected over the years. <laughs> yes. Basically. And I remember the length. There must have been every Stephen King book there. Probably. All hardcovers, yes. too. Oh, yeah. All those books were... Did you buy those, like, yep. first edition, whatever, yep. like, when oh, they, they came were, out? They were first editions. But I was in, like, the Literary Guild, so I could order them. What's the Literary Guild? Oh, it's a book club. It's oh. a book club. Um, I say book club. It was online. And you'd get oh, things every month. It was like the record clubs. Right, that you right. You pay a, a little uh, membership fee or yeah. something, and then you get to get the books ahead of time yep. or, or like at a discount price. Yeah. So did exactly. they ship the books to Weymouth, to the House of Weymouth? Yep. God, do. I don't remember that. It's almost like Scholastic yeah. before adults. Yes. That was That's one exactly of the highlights. Right. I wasn't a big reader as a kid, but I remember when you, we get the Scholastic books where you get that oh, um, uh, brochure Yep. To go through it and find the books that you wanted to order. Oh, yeah. when those books came in school, it was the, so that exciting. Was. That must have been great for you to get all those. So when the package arrived, oh, yeah. that was the, really some anticipation. True. 
Those Stephen King books, I've only read a couple of them, but you've read all of them. I haven't read all of them lately, the newer ones. Yeah, yeah. He changed a lot in his later books, and now he's got a few that are going back to what Hmm. his original original way of writing. Yeah. Like The Shining. Right. Those, yeah. Do you feel, what do you think changed? Did he have some sort of change in his writing style? Well, his subjects and what he wrote about just got very dark and mm. twisted, mm-hmm. which generally I don't mind. But yeah, they just weren't as good as the earlier ones. Right, right. But I have read a couple of his newer ones. Which They're ones? Good. Uh, the one, uh, Mr. Mercedes. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, that was interesting. Was it good? It was good. Now that's is I that like the that one. that's not the companion to The Shining. No. That's like Doctor Sleep or something. There's he wrote a book that oh, was a that? part two of The Shining, oh. about the little kid who's grown up to be an adult and it's and he can still shine, and it's about his oh. experiences. Mister, what's Mister Mercedes? It's about a person that steals a woman's Mercedes and plows into a crowd of people waiting to get into a store like Black Friday. So all the oh. people and, mm-hmm. and enjoying it. Oh, Just wow. Just enjoying running over all these people. Do you think his writing, that, that makes me think of that story from his life when he was hit by the car. I wouldn't be surprised you know? if it had something to do with it. I feel like that was in the, maybe in the 90s. Yeah. He was just out for a walk yeah. in, in his town. And right. I don't even know if it was night or day, what happened, but he was laid up for a long time. Yeah. What's your favorite, if you had to take one Stephen King book to a desert island, which which one would you take? (laughs) Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. I liked um, Salem's Lot. Yeah. That's one of his really early ones. Yeah. That's vampires, right? I I. I, honestly, I don't remember, I think but that's I think vampires. it was. I think it was vampires. Yeah. Did you read The Stand? Yes, that was another favorite. That yes. was a big one. That was a big. I always looked for big ones. Yeah. You, the bigger the better. Yes. Yeah. The smaller they were over too quickly. Right. And the worlds aren't with a big, long, thick book. You know that the world is going to be enormous and lots of characters, and you're going to be invested in a whole. Universe. True. So there's more return, I -hmm. guess, on a bigger book like that. Yes. I I read Salem's Lot five or six years ago because I I haven't read any books of his. Oh. And I loved it. I read it really fast, and it was so fun. It is. They are fun. And Stephen King doesn't get the respect that he deserves. I agree. People think that he's just a... I mean, he only writes... He writes primarily horror, of course, but... Yeah. People don't see him as like a gifted, talented writer. They see him as just churning out another horror book right. every year. Right. And But his those early books are oh, unbelievable. They are. They really are. I He also wrote a book called On Writing, which I love about his, yes. his writing life. And, I think I bought that. Oh, it's great. I think it's in storage. Okay. <laughs> That was, that's another question I wanted to ask you. So you have these this library full of books, and you have all you have just stacks and boxes, and, and so you sell the house and get a trailer. Where do all the where does all your stuff go? Storage. And a lot it, of the books were donated to the library, and oh, uh, that's nice of you. A couple of consignment shops. Yeah. In the area. Yeah. And there's a book drops where you can. Donate books for right. kids and things. Was that hard? Something. Yeah, it was. I bet to say <laughs> goodbye very to. Because there is years of experience in those books. Absolutely. Those books, some of those books have been in your life, I'm assuming since you were in like in your 20s or 30s. Oh, absolutely. Yep. How, and what, did you have to go through all those books and make choices about what to. Yes. How did you determine that? I don't know. I don't know how I did it, but I, I oh, do it now. It's, like, it's not so hard. Sophie's, it's not hard it's not, now? not hard now because I know because of the weight in the trailer, you read it and you donate it. Right. Usually to the parks. They have libraries in most of the RV parks. Mm, okay. 
So you'll read it and you'll leave it behind for someone else. Yep. That must have been really hard to say goodbye to yeah. so many of those books. It was very hard. Because books are, you know, you have a very intimate experience with them. It's just you and the book. True. And you get to imagine it's all laid out for you, but you're the only person who's seeing it as you're seeing it in your brain. Yes. I feel like everyone has a different experience with every book because it's so subjective. And so one, one book that doesn't move someone else that really moves you and that you remember, because I remember books um, from four or five years ago that I read that I read at a very specific time in my life. Uh-huh. So oh, I remember I, I read that book when I just got that job or I, I was reading that book when I was on a train or I was reading that book when I went on and did the tour of that play, mm-hmm. of The Graduate for a Year, right. I asked a bunch of friends of mine to give me book suggestions because I was going to be doing so much traveling to read you know, some books that I should have read that I hadn't read, like On the Road. I'd never read On the Road. Yeah. I'd never read um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yep. I'd never read um, Lolita, uh, a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, these sort of American... Um, well, Alita's not American, but these classic <laughs> books that I should have read in school, but I yeah. didn't. And so when I see those books now, I relate them back to 2003. Right. And so it would be hard right. for me to give my copy of On the Road that I read when I was 23 and on a bus driving across the country. <laughs> that's, I wouldn't, that's a book I would never, I wouldn't give up. Did it's you have hard. to make those kinds of mm-hmm. decisions? Yes. Oh, that's yes. brutal. It, it, it was. It was. You should tell me which books you miss, and I'm going to buy you new copies <laughs> of them. And then you can't do anything with them because you that's can't, right, put, them you the can't put them in the trailer. <laughs> I have, we have uh, one cabinet that's full of books. I've seen, I was there on Sunday night, and I was looking that's at right. the books um, that are there. And uh, How many do you have? Uh, probably 25 or 30. Yeah. And a lot of them are, are paperbacks. paperback, yeah. right, because they're not as writer. heavy. Right. So have you fully transitioned to having the Kindle or whatever that is? The... Not totally. No. I like both. Okay. I do the Kindle and I do actual books. Yeah. I like both of them. What's the biggest difference, do you feel? I like holding it in my hand. Me too. It's, it's just something about the it. The smell of the paper and paper. having it. In yep. your hand, yeah. Yeah. But there's some, but it also is, especially in your situation when you can't manage all the weight of the books, it must be very helpful to have 25 books on the Kindle and it, you know, it weighs <laughs> 10 ounces or something. <laughs> however. 25 books. I have 15 pages of titles. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. I'm an addict. What are you, what, what, what are you reading right now? Uh, I just finished a book right now. Iris was there a priest Hansen. in it? No, no it, priest. In was there a gritty cop solving a mystery? Um, no, actually, there weren't. What did you? What was? There what was, was the book? It was called Iris Johansson, and you know, I can't think of the name of it. It was nightmares, genetically Whoa. engineered nightmares. Whoa! So they could do mind control. I God, love you read books. all this dark, spooky stuff. I do. Yeah, you love that stuff. I do love that stuff. You like cop stuff as well, right? I do. I do. But I also like books about people living on islands in Maine. You're right, One yeah. One of my favorite authors wrote about families that lived on islands. Fiction or, or a non, non-fiction? Fiction. Fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah. But they, they were amazing. Did you see that HBO miniseries, the um, Olive Kittredge, which was no. that miniseries about a family, a, like a middle-aged couple living in, in Maine and their relationship? No. Oh, God, you would love it. No, I didn't see Frances that. McDormand so reminds me of you and your sisters. Oh, really? Like in a way, not the way that she behaves, but just like her look. Like she, she really sort of, she was so New England. And Maine specifically, <laughs> which is kind of different from Connecticut or True. Boston. It is. That, that um, I don't know, there's those, those like New England faces that yeah. you don't see That's everywhere. True. Yeah, you have to, I have to get that for you on HBO Go yeah. so you can watch it because you would love it. It's all it takes place in Maine. 
I would. You would really enjoy it. Um, you've been also um, doing a lot of volunteer work at libraries. You were in Florida for the entire winter, yes, right? Yes, most of it, November through March. And were you working in a library I was. there? What were, you, what were you doing? I put books back, you know, yep. shelved books that had come back in. Yep. And I did shelf reading, just checking to make sure everything is in the right place. Oh, that's called shelf reading. Yep. Okay. And That's a library term that I didn't know about. Learn I'm something new? You. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, I would do the kids' books, which most of the volunteers didn't like to do. How come? Because they were messy, and you didn't always get – you'd go to put it away, and there'd be like seven <laughs> books that are in the wrong place. Right. So it would take a right. little longer. Right. But, oh, you mean going to the kids' section and yes. like arranging – Right, because it always looks just like a putting them back books right. that have been returned. When you try to put them back, they're all messed it's up. Chaos over there. Yes, you were telling me. I, I don't know if this was at dinner the other night or at up at, uh, at in your trailer when you're saying that because of flu season, you have to clean. Yes. So talk me through that. What did you have to do? <laughs> you had the, to. There was a spray bottle and a cloth and the bottle had water and alcohol and you'd spray the cloth and wipe the covers and the you know pages you yeah, know the, the outside the spine, the spine or whatever yes. i mean you wouldn't yeah. flip through and do no, it on the pages no. of course <laughs> how many no so do you think every library does that no <sighs> i've never seen anyone do it i wonder how many flu bugs were passed from book to book probably thousands god yeah because they're very stubborn. They don't go away. Yeah, right. So, so yeah. every book that came back, you would sort of spray it and wipe it down. Yep. God bless you. <laughs> You're doing God's work. Did you like going to this library? I loved it. What was it like? It's a small library, and for for the size and the fact that it's Florida, it had a pretty decent selection of books. Yeah. But going from Westwood... Or Weymouth. Right. To Florida, it blew my mind how little they had. They had beautiful buildings, but very few books. Really? Yes. What do you think the difference was? I don't know. People in Florida don't read much. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. No, I, it's a generalization, <laughs> but I'm pretty much behind you it is. there. But I assumed... I knit, so I assumed there would be a lot of knitting and crochet and that type of book, mm -hmm. since there's a lot of retirees. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Not so much. Wow. Yeah, I was amazed. I have to order these? Have you Have you been That's in- Crazy. Have you stopped in libraries all over the country, or is that- Not as much as I would like. Yeah. Occasionally, we would go, because I could just go spend a day in a library. Yeah. In any place. They're pretty, a good libraries. Oh, they're just amazing. They're yeah. Yeah. When I took that, I should have, I don't know, maybe you, I don't think you were in Boston at the time. You might have been on the road. But when I was taking that class at Harvard, I got a, uh, the, uh, an ID so I could get into their oh. big lending library. Yeah. And it's the size of a, I mean, it's four levels. It's the size of a city block. Whoa. And that and the building was built in, you know, 1917 or something. So it's right. this enormous brick building. And you walk in and those, you know, those, it's almost like in movies, those really long wooden tables with the green lamps. It's almost yes. like a law library. Yes. And, and you can't speak once you walk <laughs> in there. Once you swipe your card, you can't speak, basically. And there are just shelves and shelves. And they have different libraries for different schools. Right. This was like the general studies library. But even that library, wow. oh my God. Like sitting in the chairs, you felt like you were sitting in a museum. Yeah. And all the ceilings had murals like depicting the history of civilization. And, oh. and all the books um, were in these beautiful old wooden stacks. It reminded me of a church. Mm. That's another place that you love. Yes, it is. To go. Yep. Going into churches and sitting in churches. Yes. Have you been able to see? Yes. You have? Yes. Do you have a favorite that you stumbled into or do you seek uh, them out? Like Always seek them out. Yeah. Different states and different places yep. have 
significant. Texas had a, I want to say, three missions, mm. which are fascinating. Fascinating. What, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. It was there. They were started by whatever priest right. went on a mission to that area. And oh, to spread the word. Spread the word to the people. And they're all different. Um, different architecture. Yeah. What they have inside is different. Some of those were mind-bogglingly gorgeous. Were they like uh, southwestern uh, yes. architecture? Like, uh, yes, they were. Oh, Adobe, cool. Yeah, Adobe. That's Adobe the word that I was and, looking for. Yeah. But some of the murals and some of the statues were just amazing. How cool. It, it was a ball. Is there one place that you'd still like to go that you'd like to see that you haven't been able to see? I know you've been to the National Cathedral a oh, bunch. Oh, well, yes. Times Many in D.C. Times. Have you been to Many Grace times. Church in San Francisco? Is that the cathedral? Yeah. Yes. The one that has the labyrinth? Yeah. I love labyrinth. It's on the top of that. It's on the very top of a hill. Yes. Yes. And you can, there's a whole view of San Francisco oh, from, from up there. That was gorgeous. That place is beautiful. Yes. Last time I was in, or maybe two times ago when I was in San Francisco, I was staying in a hotel near there. Uh-huh. And I stumbled into that place, and it's yeah. just beautiful. Yeah, I could sit in just the stained glass windows. I always wanted to buy a church that they abandoned and live in it. Really? I thought that would be the coolest thing. I had no, I didn't know this. Yeah, I thought that would be just so much fun decorating so- it, keeping. <laughs> The architecture. <laughs> Decorating it. Yeah. Yeah, but not with, like, putting up nice just window and yeah, no, not blinds with and stuff. Stained glass. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you cover those up. Yeah, of course. That's right. <laughs> that's a good point. Yep. So maybe when you get off the road, instead of buying a house somewhere, you should start looking, looking for, for a church. Yeah, and move <laughs> into a church. That would be so much fun. Maybe the perfect book for you would be a, a New England cop slash priest that lived in a church and solved mysteries. <laughs> and that would be fun. And had puppies. And had puppies. That he or she spent a lot of time Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be the perfect. It would be. It would be the perfect place. <laughs> um, do you have any books that you wish you had read but, but hadn't? Some like classic book that you thought, well, someday I'm going to pick this up, but not today. Any books that you wish that you'd you'd read? Uh, honestly, yeah, not that I can think of. Yeah, I I feel like I have to read that James that Ulysses that James Joyce. Oh, I never felt I had to read that. Oh, well, you're <laughs> you're better than I am. I don't know why I feel that way. I don't either. I feel like I have to do the work and read that's, that. That's work, and to me, reading is not work. Exa- right. <laughs> I I don't want to have to work at reading. Although right. there are some books that require a little more thinking. Effort. Yeah. But to you, it is just purely, it's just a one, it's the purest form of entertainment. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you don't want to have to wrestle with some bizarre language or no. weird esoteric <laughs> setting that is bizarre. No. You want to be entertained. I do. Yeah. I Same do. here. And I think it's a form of escapism, too, that it's always, you can go so many places and be so many things yeah. in a book. Yeah. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Um, that's so funny that you say that, because I have, I, have I have the same exact feeling. Um, do you have specific memories of Tufts Library going there as a... As a oh, absolutely. When we were in, in Weymouth? Yeah. God, I... I just parking and walking into that. I have so many memories walking into that library. That was a great library. It's a great... What made it such it a really great was. library? Just the selection and the people? Yes. Yes, both. They seemed to be really nice and kind. And yes, they were very nice. And of yeah. course, we knew the custodian. Oh, God, that's right. Yeah. Of course, Don yeah, Smith. Don Smith My was God. a custodian. Yeah. And he would always... We'd have fun. Yeah. And I'd come in and go right to the new book section, and then I'd just browse. Yeah. And it's, to me, the best, 
thing in the world to do. Do you miss, um, there's so many great things about being on the road and seeing in the country and seeing friends and family all over the U.S. Are there certain, but I bet there are certain rituals that you had back in Massachusetts that you miss. Yeah. Like going to the same. Going to the same church, going yeah, to right. the library when you're traveling. You really can't go to the libraries because you can't get a card. Right. Which is hard. Yeah. It's very hard. I bet. So you have to buy books. Yes. Unless you find like they a do. lending, one of those lending libraries at the. True. And I have found a lot there. Yeah. And occasionally, we don't generally go to garage sales because that always could be a problem with. Right. Getting more stuff. Exactly. And adding weight to the trailer. <laughs> yes. But occasionally we'll stop because I'll see a table of books. And Spence will say, if you buy one, you have to get rid of one. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. That's a fair trade, yep, I guess. It is. Do you miss certain um, certain places and certain friends back back in Massachusetts that who you – like certain restaurants or – Certain yes. spots that you can't go to anymore. I mean, you can, but you can only when, when you're right back there. But yeah, yes, yes, there are restaurants that we used to go to a yeah. lot, and 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 friends that we don't see as much. Well, we hook up in in the summertime. Yeah, but yeah, I do. But I really feel like that is such the minority. You are just blissfully happy. Absolutely. Going around the country. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I really love it. When you told me that you were doing this with almost three years. Ago, I thought it was the coolest idea I had ever heard, and then I thought, "There's no way this is going to last. <laughs> That's too hard of a life." But no, no. not hard at all. Just we've had, fun. Oh, so much fun! And we've had people travel with us, and they would watch us set up. Which, when we first got the trailers, it would take like an hour, hmm. and now we can do it in fifteen minutes. Right. And they'd, they'd be looking, saying, I would have killed my husband doing this. Right. We would have been screaming at each other. And right. You two don't do that. Like, no, we don't. Yeah, we each do our thing, and it changes yeah. from time to time what I do. And if I do inside, she'll do outside or vice versa. And there's nothing that either one of us doesn't do. Both of us can do all of it. But you have such a, I feel like you have such a great relationship. You never take breaks. Like you're, you're in a truck and in a trailer with each other all day, <laughs> all true. year. There isn't a person on this earth besides Sam who I could do that with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we don't take yeah. enough vacations. I, Obviously. I think we have a, maybe a future as a, like a road trip road team. It's a road trip. Road trip team <laughs> is the name of my next podcast. And it's you and I on the road having experiences. Um, my mom has been here. She's an enormous book lover. She was the first person who turned me on to, to the idea that you can go to a library and go to a bookstore and always have a book in your hand. And like you just so eloquently put two minutes ago, be different people, see different places, explore different worlds. And I remember, you know, when you'd hear like ads for reading to, that were aimed towards kids like be anyone you want to be and go if you want to go to the moon you can go to the moon in a book and I'd roll my eyes at it yeah like you can't go to the moon but as I've gotten older and I've read more I've realized that you can go anywhere you want true and that's why I'm so yeah when you're drawn to certain books it's because you're drawn to those worlds and you want to spend time there yes yeah well thank you so much for coming in and and talking to me thank you for inviting me this has been fun and thanks for um for putting books in my hand. Oh. You're the first person to do that. So I'm so glad. And all three of my kids yeah. read. Yeah. That's, That's because of you. It's wonderful. You don't still want to be buried with a bunch of books, do you? <laughs> Remember that conversation? Books and lunch. See, well, I don't understand this. We got, we got another minute in this interview, and I, this is what we're going to figure out. Your mother wanted a... Uh, brown paper. My grandmother. Your grandmother, yes, excuse my me. My grandmother wanted a lunch. A packed lunch. Yes. How come? Because you never know. <laughs> she might yes, get you hungry. do. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want a packed lunch. Do you want a packed lunch? No, I don't want a packed lunch. Okay. No. 
Do you no. want anything else in there? Because I remember you talking about that back, this is, yeah. my God, years yeah. ago, 25 sure. years ago. No, I don't you think You joking so. about, no. I don't think so. Okay, so I don't have it's to. not important anymore. Okay, good, good. All right, we've cleared that up. <laughs> yes. All right, thanks for coming in, Mom. I love you. Thank you, I love you too. All right. My mother, she came in and sat across from me. That was the first time she was interviewed. Can you believe that? My God. Uh, she was, it was so fun. I hope it was fun for you guys to listen to. It was really charming to have her sit across from me and ask her about her life and her reading experiences. She's an amazing woman. Um, I'm lucky to have her as my mom. So thanks, mom. Thanks for coming in. Uh, we're at the final act of the show where things get more dramatic. And this piece is less dramatic, but just really lovely. This is a piece um, for my friends back east, really. My friends who've, who live in the Northeast, who have suffered through a debilitating winter, this piece is for you. It's April, and winter is over. And when winter ends, sure, yeah, okay, it's going to be in the 40s a couple more times, and there might be a little sleet here and there. It's okay. Winter is fucking over, people. And you did it. You fought the fight, and you've earned spring. And with spring comes baseball. And even if you're not a baseball fan, when baseball shows up, if you live in a cold weather climate, baseball is a trigger. It means winter is over and you are transitioning to sun and fun. So April 5th is open, officially opening day for baseball season. So I thought I'd read a spring baseball piece to reward all these people who have just suffered through a nightmare of a winter. So this is a piece from The New Yorker written uh, on October 22nd, 1960 by John Updike. John Updike is an amazing author. He's one of three writers who's won two Pulitzer Prizes. He's most famous for his Rabbit, Rabbit Run series. Uh, he's a poet and he uh, wrote short stories. And this arguably is the greatest piece of sports writing ever written. And I'm not just saying that because I'm from Boston and I like the Red Sox. If you ask people who are in the know about sports writing, they'll always mention this piece. It's called Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu, October 22nd, 1960. And it's John Updike at his most powerful. So, uh, and there's a lot of great sports writers out there. Uh, I love Charlie Pierce. He's worth reading every week. He's on Grantland. He's been running for years. But John Updike... Uh, is, an, is a writer first and a sports fan second. And you get to hear that in this reading. So I've been, I've been wanting to read this for years because uh, I love it so much. So I'm going to read it myself. Um, so we're going to hear the page flipping sound effect and then my reading voice is going to come. So here comes uh, John Updike's Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu by yours truly. Fenway Park in Boston is a lyric little band box of a ballpark. Everything is painted green and seems in curiously sharp focus, like the inside of an old-fashioned peeping-type Easter egg. It was built in 1912 and rebuilt in 1934 and offers, as do most Boston artifacts, a compromise between man's Euclidean determinations and nature's beguiling irregularities. Its right field is one of the deepest in the American League, while its left field is the shortest— the high left field wall, 315 feet from home plate along the file line, virtually thrusts its surface at right-handed hitters. On the afternoon of Wednesday, September 28th, as I took a seat behind third base, a uniformed groundskeeper was treading the top of this wall, picking batting practice home runs out of the screen, like a mushroom gatherer seen in Wordsworthian perspective on the edge of a cliff. The day was overcast, chill, and uninspirational. The Boston team was the worst in 27 seasons. They were scheduled to play the Baltimore Orioles, a much nimbler blend of May and December, who had been dumped from pennant contention a week before by the insatiable Yankees. I, and 10,453 others, had shown up primarily because this was the last Red Sox home game of the season, and therefore, the last time in all eternity that their regular left fielder, known to the headlines as Ted, Kid, Splinter, Thumper, T 
T.W. and, most cloyingly, Mr. Wonderful would play in Boston. What will we do without Ted, Hub fans ask, ran the headline on a newspaper being read by a bulb-nosed cigar smoker a few rows away. Williams' retirement had been announced, doubted he had been threatening retirement for years, confirmed by Tom Yawkey, the Red Sox owner, and at last widely accepted as the sad but probable truth. He was 42, and had redeemed his abysmal season of 1959 with a, considering his advanced age, fine one. He had been giving away his gloves and bats and had grudgingly consented to a sentimental ceremony today. This was not necessarily his last game. The Red Sox were scheduled to travel to New York and wind up the season with three games there. The affair between Boston and Ted Williams had been no mere summer romance. It had been a marriage composed of spats, mutual disappointments, and, toward the end, a mellowing horde of shared memories. It falls into three stages, which may be termed youth, maturity, and age, or thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, or Jason, Achilles, and Nestor. First, there was the by now legendary epic when the young bridegroom came out of the West, announced, all I want out of life is that when I walk down the street, folks will say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. The dowagers of local journalism attempted to give elementary deportment lessons to this child who spake as a god, and to their horror were themselves rebuked. Thus began the long exchange of backbiting, hat-flipping, booing, and spitting that has distinguished Williams' public relations. The spitting incidents of 1957 and 1958 in the similar dockside courtesies that Williams has now and then extended to the grandstand should be judged against this background. The left field stands at Fenway for 20 years have held a large number of customers who have bought their way in primarily for the privilege of showering abuse on Williams. Greatness necessarily attracts debunkers, but... In William's case, the hostility has been systematic and unappeasable. His basic offense against the fans has been to wish that they weren't there. Seeking a perfectionist vacuum, he has quixotically desired to sever the game from the ground of paid spectatorship and publicity that supports it. Hence his refusal to tip his cap to the crowd or turn the other cheek to newsmen. The batting cage was trundled away. The Orioles fluttered to the sidelines. Diagonally across the field by the Red Sox dugout, a cluster of men in overcoats were festering like maggots. I could see a splinter of white uniform, and Williams' head held at a self-deprecating and evasive tilt. Williams' conversational stance is that of a six-foot-three-inch man under a six-foot ceiling. He moved away to the patter of flashbulbs and began playing catch with a young Negro outfielder named Willie Tasby. His arm, not very powerful, had grown lax with the years, and his throwing motion was a kind of muscular drawl. To catch the ball, he flicked his glove hand onto his left shoulder. He batted left, but threw right, as every schoolboy ought to know, and let the ball plop into it comically. This catch session with Tasby was the only time all afternoon that I saw him grin. Williams was third in the batting order, so he came up in the bottom of the first inning. And Steve Barber, a young pitcher who was not yet born when Williams began playing for the Red Sox, offered him four pitches, at all of which he disdained to swing, since none of them were within the strike zone. This demonstrated simultaneously that Williams' eyes were razor sharp and that Barber's control wasn't. Shortly, the bases were full, with Williams on second. Oh, I hope he gets held up at third. That would be wonderful, the girl beside me moaned. And sure enough, the man at bat walked and Williams was delivered into our foreground. He struck the pose of Donatello's David, the third base bag being Goliath's head. Fiddling with his cap, swapping small talk with the Oriole third baseman who seemed delighted to have him drop in, swinging his arms with a sort of prancing nervousness, he looked fine, flexible, hard, and not unbecomingly substantial through the middle. The long neck, the small head, the knickers whose cuffs were worn down near the ankles. All these points, often observed by caricaturists, were visible in the flesh. 
The afternoon grew so glowering that in the sixth inning the arc lights were turned on, always a wan sight in the daytime, like the burning headlights of a funeral procession. Williams was second up in the eighth. This was almost certainly his last time to come to the plate in Fenway Park. And instead of merely cheering, as we had at his three previous appearances, we stood, all of us, stood and applauded. Have you ever heard applause in a ballpark? Just applause. No calling, no whistling, just an ocean of hand claps. Minute after minute. Burst after burst, crowding and running together in continuous succession, like the pushes of surf at the edge of the sand. It was a somber and considered tumult. There was not a boo in it. It seemed to renew itself out of a shifting set of memories as the kid, the marine, the veteran of feuds and failures and injuries, the friend of children, and the enduring old pro evolved down the bright tunnel of 21 summers toward this moment. At last, the umpire signaled for Fisher to pitch. With the other players, he had been frozen in position. Only Williams had moved during the ovation, switching his hat impatiently, ignoring everything except his cherished task. Fisher wound up, and the applause sank into a hush. Understand that we were a crowd of rational people. We knew that a home run cannot be produced at will. The right pitch must be perfectly met, and luck must ride with the ball. Three innings before, we had seen a brave effort fail. The air was soggy. The season was exhausted. Nevertheless, there will always lurk around a corner in a pocket of our knowledge of the odds an indefensible hope. And this was one of the times which you now and then find in sports when a density of expectation hangs in the air and plucks an event out of the future. Fisher, after his unsettling wait, was wide with the first pitch. He put the second one over and Williams swung mightily and missed. The crowd grunted, seeing that classic swing so long and smooth and quick, exposed, naked in its failure. Fisher threw the third time. Williams swung again, and there it was. The ball climbed on a diagonal line into the vast volume of air over center field. It was in the books while it was still in the sky. Brant ran back to the deepest corner of the outfield grass. The ball descended beyond his reach and struck in the crotch where the bullpen met the wall, bounced chunkily, and as far as I could see, vanished. Like a feather caught in a vortex, Williams ran around the square of bases at the center of our beseeching scream. He ran as he always ran out home runs, hurriedly, unsmiling, head down, as if our praise were a storm of rain to get out of. He didn't tip his cap. Though we thumped, wept, and chanted, we want Ted, for minutes after he hid in the dugout, he did not come back. Our noise for some seconds passed beyond excitement into a kind of immense open anguish, a wailing, a, a cry to be saved. But immortality is non-transferable. The papers said that the other players and even the umpires on the field begged him to come out and acknowledge us in some way, but he never had and did not now. Gods do not answer letters. Williams' last word had been so exquisitely chosen, such a perfect fusion of expectation and tension and execution that already it felt a little unreal in my head, and, and I wanted to get out before the castle collapsed. But the game, though played by clumsy midgets under the feeble glow of the arc lights, began to tug at my attention, and I loitered in the runway until it was over. The Sox won 5-4. On the car radio as I drove home, I heard that Williams had decided not to accompany the team to New York, so he knew how to do even that. The hardest thing. Quit. Another Reading Aloud episode has come to a close. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We heard Anna Ferris reading Juliana Gray. We heard my mother talk about books and storage. And then we heard me reading about baseball. We're going to be back with an all-new episode next Friday. I have a spectacular, exclusive interview 
with John Cryer. His memoir comes out on the 7th. Uh, it's called So That Happened. And he sat down with me for an hour. And I think next, next week's episode is just going to be his interview. It's just going to be an hour of he and I talking because it was so much fun and he's just the best. So that's next week's episode. Get the book for the next book club, Tender is the Night, F. Scott Fitzgerald. It may be a challenge for some of you because a lot of people don't go back to classics. They, they want to read new fiction. Take a risk. Try reading something that you maybe otherwise wouldn't read. Fuck it, roll the dice. If you don't like it after 50 pages, you don't have to finish it. But try it. Tenders and I, go pick it up. And come uh, see the show. Uh, April 12th, Sunday at 7.30, at the UCB in Franklin. It's $5. Come by and, uh, and see us do this live. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at uh, I'm Nate Cordry, and the podcast is Reading Loud Pod. Also, the theme music is Possessed by Paul James, by his music, because he's brilliantly talented. My name is Nate Cordry. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Reading Aloud. Goodbye. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.